Carter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry Hutchinson for Interpreter Radio this evening. For the second hour of our Sunday night broadcast, we are sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a 50C3 corporation. All of your donations to the Interpreter Foundation are tax-free, and the mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to uh, defend the doctrines, teachings, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship. And uh, the Interpreter Foundation just celebrated its 10th anniversary this year, and it is amazing to see all of the things that it does. It publishes books, releases free articles online every week, um, sponsors movies, sponsors docudramas, sponsors conferences. We just had one last week on ancient temples, and uh, just a whole host of activities, including these Sunday night radio broadcasts that are later turned into podcasts. And so if you are interested, just go to the Interpreter Foundation website where you can learn more. I want to thank one of our long-term sponsors, which is LDSAgents.com. Uh, they are a group of about two or 3,000 LDS agents who have united together to be able to help you in determining what's best for you and your family in today's real estate market, whether you're buying, selling, relocating. Uh, go to LDSAgents.com, and you can find an agent there that shares your values and also somebody that knows the neighborhoods that you'll be dealing with, whether it's selling, whether it's buying, and can kind of help you because the market right now is really volatile as interest rates change nearly every day, as people uh, get worried about the economy. You know, they still have to move. They still have to find houses. So go to LDSAgents.com, and you'll be able to find somebody who can help you there. Uh, we also wanted to remind you that, that uh, if you can go to BountifulTravel.com, you can look up the Interpreter Foundation Tour, which will be a biblical one for Turkey this coming year. Two-thirds of the books in the New Testament, there are 27 of them, so two-thirds were either written in Turkey or written to cities in Turkey. And so this will be a great opportunity for you in October of next year to uh, take a cruise and visit and learn a lot from the guides that will be able to share a lot of good information from you as well as uh, be able to see some places that you've always read about in the New Testament, which is uh, going to be our Come Follow Me study course this year for the, for the church. And um, this evening, John and Kevin, we have a special program because we are a little off calendar as we know, so next week, Interpreter is going to be introducing some new features for the Come Follow Me section. But this week, we get to talk about Christmas, and especially about the Old Testament. And for me, as I was thinking about it, it really follows on with what we were talking about just in the last hour, particularly with the work of Margaret Barker, who really ties in the Old and the New Testament. I mean, Kevin will correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if I recall, there's the story of um, Margaret being at Cambridge and them asking her if she wanted to specialize in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and she said, why? It's all one volume. Is that kind of, did I get that right, Kevin? Yes. Yes, that's... <laughs> 
So anyway, yeah. I, I just wanted to say that um, this entire year of studying the Old Testament has been an incredible joy for me. I mean, I love the Old Testament. I love the fact that the Book of Mormon is a bridge. The Book of Mormon I've always viewed as an Old Testament book, not a new one. I've never viewed it as being anachronistic when it comes to describing Jesus Christ. And so, when Kevin, when you wrote the uh, defense of uh, the Book of Mormon and its approach to Jesus from a perspective using a lot of Margaret's work, I really... Uh, appreciated that because I agreed with it 100%. And so one of the things that the Old Testament does is it anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ, which is something that we in our day are anticipating again. And so, you know, we look back, maybe we have some traditions or some things like that that we can use. What are some of the traditions that you recall or that you have in your family that help remind you about this season and about about Jesus and what it's all about. Kevin, we'll start with you. Just the, the Christmas traditions, Christmas programs. That, I mean, there's there's a lot of the uh, celebratory stuff, but underneath it, there's always this sense that uh, you know, that we ought to be thinking about Jesus and the gift giving is is inspired by the gifts of the Magi and certainly the gift of Christ Himself. And, uh, you know, even when I was a little kid, they'd, we'd go over to the, like, the Orchard Second Ward, and they'd show the Christmas film, and the part of it would be, like, a marionette telling the story of, of Mary and Joseph, and that, you know, the, the repetition, and the songs that we would sing in primary, and, and also in, you know, the the, uh, the Christmas programs at church, and, you know, being in the choirs for a lot of those over the years. It's It's something that... Put you in mind, and I, I think there's there gets to be something about the season, about December, about uh, seeing the, the lights come up in the houses, and the sense of of uh, you know the the word holiday originally having that holy day, and you start to to recognize some of the holiness in it, you know, beyond the glitz and the and the glitter, that there's something there that we really celebrate, and the, you know, the, the gift of life and the promise. There's something of that innocence and the promise and the hopefulness that comes with it that is uh, that has been great, you know, to, to experience, you know, as a child, as uh, <clears throat> as you know, getting a, a little bit older, starting your own family and seeing now kids, and then seeing it all again through their eyes, then becoming a grandparent and seeing it again through my granddaughter's eyes. You know, it's a it's a something that's renewing and and uplifting, and. Uh, I remember uh, when I was at Beaumont High School, we had, a, we had a really good choir director and a really good choir, lots of talented kids, but just, you know, being doing the songs at Christmas and doing them, hearing them being sung beautifully uh, is something that uh, I find really spiritual and t- touching. John? Um You know, as I've talked with other people about their Christmas traditions, um, the ones that we have either are widely shared or would make no sense to anyone else. Um, And so there's um, the thing you do hope about it is you pass down family traditions and 
uh, one time one of our kids was asked about what traditions do you have at Christmas, and we don't have any. Um, <laughs> um, which we do, but you hope that they understand why you have the tradition as well as they, they know what the tradition, but they also know why it is you have that. Uh, some of the traditions uh, very can very easily slip into the foolish traditions of the fathers if you're not careful. Um, and you hope that you have something that's meaningful uh, that you pass on. Uh, that's the whole point of tradition. It's um, traditio is what you pass down. So um, Christmas is one of the is is interesting as a Christian holiday because the earliest Christian holidays are all based on a lunar calendar. You have the Sabbath and you have Easter, and. Christmas is a later one because it's based on the Roman calendar. And so it's the same date every year. Easter is not. Um, and and the Sabbath is not. And uh, so it's a later tradition, but it's still worth, in as much as it reminds us of Christ, then it's worth celebrating. I think when it ceases to have that element to it, then it is just a foolish tradition. Yeah. You know, I was, in fact, my son was asking me about it today because he knew we were going to be talking about this. He says, well, what about the Roman thing that, you know, he's a big fan of Roman history. And uh, I just said, I have to confess, I don't pay attention to that at all. I view... um, the day to remember the birth of the Savior as being the culmination of thousands of years of belief and of scriptures that we don't know and the scriptures that we do have. And, you know, the angelic host singing for joy, that this, this culmination, I, I love the word culmination for it because it really does bring all of the prophecies, all of the symbols, all of the worship to a head. Um, I, it makes me feel like one of the uh, w- uh, one of the men I was working with, who um, I was asked to help him by our stake president, and he and I were studying together a- about temples, and he I introduced him to Margaret Barker's work and Matthew Brown's work. And he kind of studied that on his own. And eventually he told me he was in the temple for the first time in a long time. And there was a place where in the ceremony at that time you you moved some of your clothing in a certain way. And he said all of a sudden it was as if a vision opened to him and he saw all of those who were worshiping all the way back. And it moved him to the point of tears where he was just weeping as a result of that. And when I think of the birth of the Christ child and the Annunciation 
Yeah, Christmas is great. There's lots of things about it. But when I think of that and I think of all of those faithful people who, you know, throughout the centuries and the millennia had looked for this date, I just am overwhelmed with it. I think that's probably why the Old Testament is my favorite and why I appreciate reading about the symbols and about the temple and the worship and becoming passionate about it and trying to share that passion with others because, you know, it is the pinnacle of everything that we have come to earth for. And so, yeah, we have a lot of family traditions and a lot of the traditions don't really have anything to do with that per se, but we hope and we work to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. So, um, Kevin, what are some of the symbols from the Old Testament that have really stood out for you this year that lead us to Jesus? Okay, well, one of the things that that I like is... Uh, well, let's see if I can find it in here. I've got my... It's it's the temple, and it's the world of the temple. And that's that's one of the things. That, you know, Margaret's Christmas book is is talking about how uh, the symbolism of the temple helps us understand what's going on in the Christmas stories because they're told. You know, the the you know the story of uh, Zacharias at the temple and Jesus being presented at the temple, and then they skip twelve years to tell another temple story, and. Uh, and how that comes in there. So there's, there's this. Um, she's she's got this. This is just page six of her book. She says, um, and they're talking about how uh, the 110th uh, Psalm. It's in Isaiah 53 are two of the most requoted passages, you know, from the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament. You know, which they're trying to explain. You know, that we see these things as telling us who Jesus is, and. Uh, like there's a there's a line from Psalm 110 today have begotten you that's one of the royal psalms and they're she's pointing it towards him and they they talk about how uh, let's see the psalm describes the birth of the royal high priest she says that the Hebrew text is damaged and the English versions give on the day you lead your host upon the holy mountains from the womb of the morning like dew your youth will come to you that's the Revised Standard Version or in the day of thy power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. And the Greek has, in the day of your power and the glory of the holy ones from the womb before dawn I begot you. Well, that's getting more interesting. And then the gist of the Hebrew, she says, uh, no, one of the things that she, she points out is, is that uh, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew is unreadable. It's, you know, they kind of have to speculate or else look at the Greek and figure out what the Hebrew might have been at the time. So she says, on the day of your birth in the glory of the Holy Ones from the womb, I have begotten you as the morning star. And then she's able to point to uh, an early Christian writer, uh, Eusebius, writing a commentary on the Psalms in the 4th century. He knew a version of the Psalm 110.3 that had Mary, where the present Hebrew text has womb. And she points out the Hebrew um, Miriam from the womb had been read as Miriam. Mary, that is Mary. And she says, it's not impossible. 
And that also points me towards this, uh, the, the prophecy in Alma where it's, you know, it gets her name. So this kind of uh, thing, it kind of reminds me how beautiful the story is and, and to see more in it, not just, you know, to, to have the story that we preach in exactly the same way every year, but uh, to try and see more and feel more and let it touch us more. I think is something that we can do this way when we study. When you know, it's important to you know to go through it again, but also to try and expand a bit to have our souls enlarged a bit as we learn some more. Since that's one of the things that happens in the season is our souls enlarging towards one another. Thank you, John. Uh, well, you talk about old Old Testament things that remind us of of Christmas. Um, oddly enough, um, the one that I think of is um, Isaiah 7 through 12. Uh, this is a prophecy given to Ahaz when there are some difficulties. and um, the, But this has been understood as a prophecy of the Messiah. So I'm going to... Um, this is... Isaiah 9 5, but this is a Jewish translation of the Targums. Um, so this is the way it was interpreted uh, not too far from Jesus' day. So hopefully our technical difficulty is passed. Uh, the prophet said unto the house of David, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he has taken the law upon himself to keep it. His name is called from before him who is wonderful in counsel, the mighty God who liveth to, to eternity, the Messiah whose peace shall be great upon us in his days. And that's not the only reference in Isaiah because... Um, they start out in, in, in that passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, um, verse 1, it's the, the king shall come forth from the house of Jesse, and from his children's children the Messiah shall be anointed. And that's the way they interpreted that, that uh, scripture. And there's other references that they explicitly say this is the Messiah and we point those to Jesus and um, the they can debate over you know whether or not they they want to attribute that virgin birth and mentioned in Isaiah 7 um, and debate over that but the whole section was seen as messianic and as a prophecy of the Messiah by Jews um, in in Jesus's day and even after it. Well, but I know there were a lot of passages that were changed once the Christians started recognizing them and, and using them to identify Jesus. So in right, other but words, these are still, these are still there in the They're in the scriptures, but their emphasis was different. So they would be treated as a messianic reading during the synagogue readings or whatever they were doing. But when the Christians came along and started using them and saying, hey, this was Jesus, uh, they stopped using them in the synagogues as much. Uh, there, there is some of that. And, yeah. But 
the interesting thing is, is these are Jewish sources. They were available in Jesus' day mm-hmm. and show that they understood them to be messianic. Now, one of the interesting things there is the the term that is translated as Messiah in that uh, Isaiah 11 is Netzer. And there's that passage in Matthew where he says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Mm-hmm. And it said that's in the scriptures. Well, nobody finds that in the scriptures, but that Isaiah passage is was understood to mean that the, the Messiah Nazarene. would be uh, a Netzer, a, a Nazarite. So, you know, one of the things about Christmas is always, you know, getting together and maybe reading the Christmas story. And one of the Christmas stories that we don't always read is the story of Anna and Simeon in the temple. And I always enjoy hearing that one. And Margaret has a kind of a unique take on that in that uh, she says that Luke in particular is describing this story from a temple perspective. And um, she also makes uh, an indication, Kevin, about uh, that Jesus didn't need a sin offering. Tell us a little about that, if you would. Oh, I think you'll have to. I think it's been too long since I've read that one. Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway, we finally caught Kevin on something that Margaret's written that he's got to refresh his memory on. (laughs) But uh, Well, I think one of the reasons we don't read that one Mm -hmm. as often is trying getting a four-year-old. Well, to sit true. still for that part. That's true. I'm pretty rusty on the four-year-old parts. I've I've got a granddaughter, though, this Christmas who's almost there. But, yeah, it's been a while for me. But, the you know, the story of Anna and Simeon in the temple in particular uh, has always struck me. And, and we have a fun experience of that in our family because, uh, I, you know, I've taught gospel doctrine several times over the years. And my wife, Janae, was called to be the gospel doctrine teacher of our ward, just as we were picking up with the New Testament. And she was so excited. She worked hard. She spent a lot of hours studying and, and everything. And and uh, she said to me, I remember, she goes, this story of Anna and Simeon, it's so exciting. And I go, she goes, have you ever heard it? And I go, of course I have. Everybody has. And she goes, well, I wasn't as familiar with it. I'll bet not everybody in the classes. So she took a poll, and only about a third of them knew the story. And everybody else was like, okay, we're ready to learn. And uh, this was this is just a, a real interesting piece, though, because... Uh, Simeon had one function in the temple. Anna apparently had a different function in the temple, or at least spent time in the temple all the time. She'd been there for years and years, and both of them were praying to see the Lord, and they both had their prayers granted. And uh, Luke makes it a point to bring this out to us. And then obviously, you know, there's these temple elements, um, and that was one of the things that... um, really impressed me as I was studying the New Testament, particularly in line with this book that I worked on with my father-in-law, was uh, we did a chapter on Jesus in the temple and how each of the Gospels treats Jesus and his relationship with the temple. And um, 
you know, Margaret does a great job in the Christmas, the original story of kind of identifying some of those things. Um, what are some of the temple aspects of Christmas that stand out to you, Kevin? Um, well, one of the, like, one of the stories is that in the uh, Proto-Evangelum of James that she talks about, and also Nebley talked about this that I really like, is that they, uh, is that when, uh, they talk about how when, when Mary was, was actually in the temple and was working on weaving a new veil for the temple, when the Annunciation happened. And I think the symbolism of that is beautiful because the, the veil represents, you know, it's made of the four elements, uh, earth, air, wind, and fire, you know, fabrics representing that, and, and it's, it represents the boundary between the physical and the material worlds. And so the clothing of, they talk about uh, uh, Jesus, you know, being clothed in flesh, and we have the symbolism like in, in the Book of Enoch, where, where they take off his, his uh, earthly garments and put on the spiritual garments, and we have that symbolism, of course, with our own. And, uh, you know, we have you know, the idea of garments and skins, and that represents, you know, becoming fully human in this. So that kind of, it's at that transition point where she's actually, you know, working on the boundary between the, 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 the heavenly world and the earthly world, and that she becomes, you know, in a way, it, it ties in with her, her role as, as kind of the bridge and the, the, the gateway for that. So I really like that, uh, and I just I just found this page here about uh, both Simon and Enia being temple prophets. So they knew about the birth of John some months earlier. This is a quote from her: "They knew the prophecy of his birth since she was a very old woman. Anna had lived through Herod's murder of the temple priests in 32 BCE when they had been calculating. She knew the risks in making such a claim. So this is the thing where she she ties you know their roles in so many of these characters." being in the temple, and so that kind of symbolism. She, uh, in, in my essay, I, you know, at one point I quote a passage in, you know, about just wrapping the, the babe and swaddling, you know, swaddling the child, and that that's, again, that's, you know, where, where when, the, when the priest is clothed in the temple, you know, in, in our own traditions as well, it's taking on the role, uh, taking on the identity that, through that that the, that the garments symbolize, and so when and Jesus is being born into this world. Of course, he's wrapped in an earthly garment to show that it's it's the opposite, you know, of, of you know the the other side of the temple experience. It's him coming in here and then being wrapped in these, in these uh, earthly garments. So it's the the more that we understand it, the more we're going to see in this. So the manual talks, brothers, about some of the symbols. Gen- general symbols that we pick up throughout the Old Testament. Um, they list a few of them, the lamb, the manna, the water, the brass serpent, the rock, the branch, and the light. Are there some other symbols that maybe strike you from our reading that aren't quite as maybe obvious or as uh, strongly reminded as these? Got anything, John, that comes to mind? Oh. Because um, Levitic in the sacrifices in Leviticus are explicitly referenced in the 
Hebrew Bible as, as referring to the Messiah and his role. The idea is that the, the Messiah is the one who makes the atonement. Uh, that's in Leviticus 4 and 5. And it's explicit in the Hebrew and even more so in the Greek. Um, where, so the, the whole idea of the sacrifices are bound in to, or one of those symbols that's bound into it. Now you get reference to that as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, mm-hmm. which is, uh, uh, otherwise peculiar to John, but this whole notion of of sacrifice was tied up with, uh, and the idea was the Messiah that atoned for your sins, Um, and that's in in Leviticus. And so I think that's one of the symbols that doesn't fit on your list, or wasn't on your list, that does, uh, fits in very nicely with uh Jesus well and, and, and obviously it was something that was begun when they came out of the garden of eden um the yeah. temple teaches us this the book yeah. of moses teaches us this but surprisingly the bible doesn't um the well, book of the jubilees bible, kind of does but no the the bible okay this is one of those places where yeah leviticus could probably be translated a little so they bring this out, but mm-hmm. it's in there in Leviticus. No, in fact, this is a, I'm not saying it's not. It, it always surprises me when you they'll talk about you have these books finding Christ in the Old Testament or something like that, and they always leave the Leviticus ones out where it explicitly talks about Christ. Um, doesn't in the King James version, but it does in the original languages. So this is something where. Yeah, we could probably do a little uh, better bringing some of that out uh, because that figures into the New Testament when they talk about um, in the book of Hebrews and uh, and other places in the, the New Testament and the Gospels where they connect Jesus in mm-hmm. with those sacrifices. Well, and the nature of the sacrifices directly points us to Jesus Christ. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the Law of Moses, as described in the Book of Mormon. And yet, once the temple was destroyed, there weren't any more sacrifices. And it seems to me that there's an argument to be made that they lost sight of the Messiah and his mission as a result. Um, but remember, in the Book of Mormon... In Third Nephi 9, Jesus tells the Nephites, now that he has performed the sacrifice, mm-hmm. the rest of them will be done away. Um, so I think we want to be careful. Yes, there is some overlooking of, of the sacrifice and overlooking of the Messiah on the well, Jews' part. But on the other hand, they're also told that the sacrifices are being well, the, done the away Christians, with. The Christians obviously knew that it was done away with. They continued their belief in Jesus and his saving mission. And instead of looking forward, they looked back. Yeah. So, and the the sacrifice in the the Old Testament sacrifices are replaced in 3 Nephi with the sacrament. So Mm -hmm. in that sense... um, 
we've undergone a slight change, but we're still doing that in instead of in as you point out, it's in remembrance rather than anticipation. But it's, but it's still, still the pointing to Jesus, and it's still yes. uh, because the sacrifices when you were when you'd made your sacrifice in the temple, um, certain parts of the animal are just burned on the altar. The rest of it, the meat was cooked, and you were required to partake of it. So you were partaking of this sacrifice as and and as a means mm-hmm. of partaking in the atonement, and that also is continued in, in, the, the, sacrament. in the sacrament, even to the present day. Mm-hmm. Or at least it was for me this morning. <laughs> Kevin, what's, uh, what's a symbol that wasn't on the list that they were giving us in the, in the manual, maybe, that sticks out for you? Uh, well, one of the things that I've been struck by, and it's coming from from Barker's approach, is where she she notes that in the, especially in the Aramaic, the the same consonants are used to spell both lamb and servant. So she sees a connection between Isaiah's servant and the lamb, and and you know, makes it a real elaborate case that they're they're referring to the same figure. So there's there's that explicit tie between Isaiah's servant and and of course the Lamb of God, and it. And brings to mind, uh, it ties the symbols together. We already see that, but I, I think that it's there in these double meanings in the language that uh, invites us to, to, to see how tightly woven and how artful uh, these, these symbols are. Um, I think the idea of the symbol is that it's, it's always something that points to something real, and the difference between something that's used as a symbol and an allegory is, you know, an allegory will have a one-to-one meeting, but, but symbols uh, will have a wider range, and it, it's, you can take it as far as you want to and, and find more in it in that sense. So it's something to, uh, when I take the sacrament, and I'm, I always, you know, try to, you know, think about the hymn that we've sung and this, you know, the stories that we're telling, and you, it's usually the stories of, of Christ's uh, crucifixion and the atonement and the resurrection and, and looking forward to that and, and taking it into ourselves, thinking about the symbolism of that, of, of becoming, uh, as we take his life into ourselves and, and, and to let that transform us to, to become more like him because we're actually taking, you know, the symbolism of taking his life, his words, his deeds, his sacrifice into ourselves and to become transformed by that to the extent that we're, we're doing these other symbolic acts of, of being buried with him and, and being raised up again and, and, and putting on, on the clothing and making the covenants. All of these things are all transformative and taking a name again. Uh, I think you know, that all of these are temple things that we do because they... That, to actually perform the ordinances, to do the symbols, it, it, it transforms the way that we see and feel and understand. So there's there's something at work here, even when we don't fully understand it as children. Uh, and as we as we grow, we we have the opportunity to learn and see more and more of this. And, and uh, if we you know pay attention and have our you know our minds opened and our hearts expanded and our souls enlarged, then that that following what he is actually doing in his life 
it's, you know, it's what of, a lot of what he had to do, according to the Book of Mormon, was uh, to learn through his experience things that would help him be able to both, you know, judge, understand, and heal, ultimately heal us. And so as we go through that ourselves, we're moving in the same direction he did, even though, you know, we're not as far along, but we can move on the same path and hold to that rod and ultimately get to our, you know, the tree of life, taste the fruit, all of these symbols that are pointing towards something that's very real. I want to follow up on a little bit on what you'd said about the servant being a a symbol, and I've got a little different... um, uh, ending up in similar results with Margaret Barker, but a little different way to get there. Um, so, Isaiah 52, verse um, 13, uh, is one of these servant songs and and mentions about the, the servant of the Lord. And um, I first noticed this when I was reading it in Coptic, which is a, a version of Egyptian, where instead of servant, they actually had, um, instead of this is God talking about his servant, this is God talking about his son, um, which is somewhat startling, but I looked and, yeah, it's there in the Septuagint, uh, where it's talking about God's son there. Um, but the Targum have it just a little bit differently instead of saying, my servant, it's my servant, the Messiah. So they also got to that point. And so the idea of the servant being a symbol of, of Christ, um, is, or I wouldn't don't know, know if I'd go for symbol more as a direct reference to Christ. Uh, is there um, in in the Isaiah passages as well. Um, as I say, it's it gets you a similar place, but uh, by a different means. Well, and for me, it, it's a follow-up to um, the sacrifices that John was describing. But, you know, when the, when the priest would go into the temple, he would sprinkle the blood in a certain way, across the altar and then across everything that was going to be cleansed, including the Ark of the Covenant. And then at the end, he would pour the blood, the remaining of the blood, in in a certain place at the foot of the altar. And for me, that always has struck me as being symbolic of the cross itself and the garden. When Jesus was in the garden, his blood fell in a sprinkling type of fashion on the ground according to the scriptures. And then, obviously, at the end, when he was pierced with a spear, um, his blood and water poured out, according to the scripture. Well, in, the, in front of the altar, so geographically, if you're at the Temple of Jerusalem and you've got the altar there, you look out and you look out the gate and you see Gethsemane. Mm. And so it is the blood sprinkling in front of the altar, maybe a little bit further out than we thought, but but it's, it's pretty much because of the spatial relationship, right? It's pretty much it's it's a straight, as far as I can tell, it's a straight shot. 
uh, pretty much from from the altar to where Jesus pours out his blood. So, as we were talking, the Old Testament this past year has been anticipating the Savior coming. Um, we're going to be talking about the New Testament going forward. I think for Interpreter, we may be doing some other things as well, um, we as broadcasters. But what is it you are looking forward to most about our study of the New Testament this coming year, um, following this Christmas theme, if you will, of, uh, of uh, anticipation? Kevin, what are you looking forward to most about the New Testament? Um, just kind of renewing my acquaintance with it, uh, renewing the focus and being able to, to sit with the saints and uh, listening to other people who have a, will have different perspectives on it and that will kind of open up my mind and remind me that I don't see everything and there's other people that are going to see things that excite me and make me glad that I was with them listening and reading and uh, in these different situations and just um, the opportunity to partake the sacrament and be reading about you know, when it was established and what it meant, you know, and all of this stuff. Uh, there's a thing that, um, that I got from reading uh, Cosmos and History, uh, Eliade's book, uh, uh, Myth of Eternal Return, where he talked about how when we, when we go through the rituals, we abolish time to a degree since, you know, it's the, the one eternal round part of it instead of the my paths are straight, although they're both happening really at the same time. You know, when we when we do the rituals, we're, we're participating in that. And so I could think about when I was a child and we, on Pioneer, we had a thing where we dress up, you know, semi-Pioneer outfits and walk around the church. And in that sense, I felt like, yeah, I really I relate with, identify with the, the Pioneers. And I think about that when we take the sacrament, as we did today, that I'm trying to relate with and identify with the earliest Christians, with, with uh, take eat, this is my body. And that moment and what it meant, and then the early Christians, is, that was part of theirs, and, and as for the saints, it's been with us. And reading about it in the Book of Mormon, it's something that, that uh, it, in a sense, it can abolish time and put us back there with them and help us identify with them and, in that sense, have our souls enlarged and our minds expanded. Um, which is, I think, is one of the things that the gospel should do for us. So for me, I'm looking forward to revisiting some of the prophecies. I was on with Martin Tanner a couple of weeks ago, and we were doing Zechariah for our Come Follow Me. And I had forgotten how much I really enjoy and appreciate Zechariah in the prophecies of the Messiah, both for his coming in mortality, as well as his second coming. I, I just, I, it caught me by surprise again as I was preparing for that broadcast. And I'm just really looking forward to it again, to go through when the gospel writers identify certain prophecies, when we see Jesus fulfilling those prophecies. And having spent a whole year in a real deep concentration on the anticipation like we've been talking about this evening and then going forward. And then, you know, just kind of like um, following up with other scriptures. For example, uh, Isaiah 25 and 8. 
He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. I just can't wait to focus on that in its in its form that's there given to us in the New Testament. Or Amulek, when he gives us in chapter 34 the description of the atonement and the great and last sacrifice, and just picturing Jesus teaching in the temple, teaching, working the miracles, um, trying to picture him in my mind. For a long time, I always wanted to dream that I could meet Lehi or Nephi. I mean, you know, um, and maybe I would dream to meet the Savior, but then again, that always makes me a little nervous (laughs) because maybe I'm not ready. But those are the kinds of things that I'm looking forward to, especially diving in, looking at the temple relationships, and getting back to some of those questions that um, originally caught my attention when I first started reading about Margaret Barker and Kevin's work is, what was it about Jesus and his teachings that caused all of these people to recognize him as the Messiah? Why did they recognize him when the powers that be and the political powers didn't? Those are the kinds of things that I'm really looking forward to and anticipating this year. John? I'm looking forward to getting back to the Gospels. Um, you know, the... Uh, As I've grown older, I appreciate the Gospels more and um, you know, Paul by comparison is okay but Jesus is much more um, interesting and relevant than Paul. And uh, it's, this is as close as we're going to get in this life, most of us, to being there. And I'm looking forward to reading them again and, uh, and learning again so we're all getting excited one last thing about this uh, Christmas presentation if you will this focus on the Old Testament was uh, a talk that President Nelson gave in 2016 it's called joy and spiritual revival now this is right before he became the prophet maybe a year or two and uh He says, my dear brothers and sisters, I would like to discuss a principle that is a key to our spiritual survival. It is a principle that will only become more important as the tragedies and travesties around us increase. These are the latter days, so none of us should be surprised when we see prophecy fulfilled. And we continue to see that around us. He just says, the prophet Lehi taught a principle for spiritual survival. First, consider his circumstances. He was persecuted for preaching the truth in Jerusalem. He'd been commanded by the Lord to leave his possessions. He was living in a tent. He watched Laman and Lemuel rebel. 
So he knew opposition, anxiety, heartache, pain, disappointment, and sorrow. Yet he declared boldly and without reservation a principle as revealed by the Lord. Men are that they might have joy. President Nelson goes on, Imagine of all the words he could have used to describe the nature and purpose of our lives here in mortality, he chose the word joy. Life is filled with detours and dead ends, trials and challenges of every kind. Each of us has likely had times when distress, anguish, and despair almost consumed us, yet we are here to have joy? The answer is a resounding yes. How is that possible? What must we do to claim the joy? Well, he goes on to give some other experiences, and then essentially he says, when the focus of our lives is on God's plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and his gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. Joy comes from and because of him, he is the source of all joy. We feel at Christmas time when we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, and we can feel it all year round. For Latter-day Saints, Jesus Christ is joy. How do we claim that joy? We start by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that's what we do at Christmas. That's what we do in the New Testament. What are some ways this year maybe that we can encourage our listeners some of the things they can do to do what President Nelson says, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. John, we'll start with you. This is a real challenge, um, and most of you know how much of a challenge it is. Um, For some of you, it may be less of a challenge, but just try keeping up with the Come Follow Me. Um, That, I think, will help get you there, and um, it's something that's doable, uh, but does require a bit of effort, and so focus on the scriptures first. A little less effort with the New Testament than, say, the Old. Well, yeah, it's a, a, it's about a third the size. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's easier to it's it will be easier to keep up on it, uh, but it's just trying to keep up on it. I think is worth the effort. Yeah, you know, um, on on my social media accounts, I saw some people that were kind of critical of some of the "Come Follow Me" broadcasts that other people do. Not this one, of course. Everybody really, this is unanimously <laughs> acclaimed. But um, I, it reminded me. It reminded me some of the comments. It reminded me of something. Um, I'm humbled. One of my clients had a really rough life. He had trouble following the commandments and doing the things that he should have. And then late in his life, I mean, he'd been in jail, he'd he'd had wealth, he'd lost his wealth. I mean, just a, a real challenging life. Didn't, didn't read anything, wasn't well educated. And near the end, he got cancer. And I remember he came to visit me one time, and he was carrying a copy of the Book of Mormon Made Easier. And I'll tell you, I felt bad. And the reason I felt bad is there was a time in my life years ago when I was 
that's just a little, uh, I won't say critical of the book, but I was, it was just like, well, the Book of Mormon is so straightforward. Why does anybody need help understanding it? And yet, with his educational background and everything, he was trying at the end to understand it in the best way he could. And this was a tool that he took advantage of to, to help him, and it did help him. And it struck me in such a way that I would hope I would never be that, uh, I guess, intellectually proud, if you will, again. And um, I think there are lots of tools and lots of levels for all of us. Of course, provided that, you know, they don't lead us astray and give us false doctrine and other things like that. But I think I think it's important to remember that there's lots of different levels and there's lots of people out there and lots of tools that we're just trying to help each other to get by and to 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 put that together. I would just suggest, and then we'll have Kevin wrap up, but I would just suggest uh, visiting the temple more regularly which also is just like John, it could be a challenge. Um, you know, in St. George, we're without our temple, so we have to drive a little ways farther up to Cedar City. But um, I think it's important to make that trip maybe a little more often than we did last year because, as President Nelson says, the last days and the prophecies are coming, and we know from the scriptures, they're only the times around us are only going to get worse. How do we fight that? Well, following "Come, follow me" is a good thing. I think going to the temple is a good thing. Kevin, what what's something that you would suggest to the listeners to help them to, you know, focus on Jesus, the finisher of our faith? Well, as we read the stories, as we read the life, and we just remember one of the things that he says: "Those things which I have done, shall ye also do." that he wants us to, to imitate him in our daily lives, not just to, you know, to read the stories, but to do the actions and to, to try and behave to one another as he would behave because you know, that's exactly what he wants to see. That's you know, what the point of him making these demonstrations and telling these stories, the parables, and, and uh, the effort that was made to provide us the scriptures, you know, these you know, when, you, when we think about the huge sacrifices involved, you know, by the uh, by the Jews, by the, the New Testament writers, by those who transmitted the scriptures through the centuries, with Joseph Smith, with the modern revelations, that there was a tremendous effort made to get these to us and to take us, you know, to spend our time learning our ABCs or whatever language that we're we're reading it in to use all of that effort that's been given to take us into this and to really take it into our lives, you know, in the same way, you know, symbolically that we protect the sacrament. We, we remember his life. We remember his, his blood that was given to us and, and to really let ourselves be transformed by it so that we take it back out and pass it out to our actions and the way we treat one another. Um, that's that's the point. That's that's the opportunity that we have in in reading these lessons and participating in a community of saints who have needs and who, who need help and who, who want this fellowship and, and to share the light that we have and take light from others. Well, thank you, Kevin. We appreciate you all joining us this evening for this uh, special broadcast. 
We wish all of you to have a good Christmas. Those of you who are listening to us on the podcast, those who are listening live, we hope you join our co-hosts next week for Interpreter Foundation Radio next Sunday evening at this time. Thank you for listening. For my co-hosts, John Gee and Kevin Christensen, that's it for this evening. Thanks for listening.